Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, why are restaurants so loud these days? Is it the move towards that minimalist design? Is it done on purpose to keep us from lingering? No matter how you slice it, noise is one of the top complaints from diners. How loud is it? And what's being done to try to turn down the volume? We find out. When we think about tornadoes, we often think about America. There are more than 800 a year there on average. But Canada sees the second most twisters of any country in the world. The issue has been many of them touch down in places where no one is there to record them. But we're getting better at that. We look into how and why that matters. The complex and often life-shaping impact of sibling relationships. Longtime family therapist Dr. Karen Gail Lewis uh, joins us to speak about the dynamics of the relationship from birth order and rivalry to parental favoritism and how it can shape so much of our futures. But first, it's been a day of shock and sadness in Edmonton after two police officers were shot and killed in the line of duty while responding to a family violence call. The suspected shooter, a 16 or 17-year-old, died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Former Edmonton police officer and criminologist Dan Jones joins me to talk about the impact on the force and the many questions that need to be answered. We're going to begin tonight in Edmonton, a city in mourning. Today, the Edmonton Police Service has been marked by a really an unthinkable and a horrific tragedy as two of our members have died in the line of duty. Constable Travis Jordan, age 35, had eight and a half years with the Edmonton Police Service. And Constable Brett Ryan, age 30, had five and a half years with the Edmonton Police Service. Constables Jordan and Ryan were valued members of our EPS family, and they worked side by side with us every day in service to our community. And I can't tell you how devastated we are with their loss. That was Edmonton Police Chief Dale McPhee earlier today. He says the two officers were responding to a family violence call at an apartment building in the city around 1 a.m. The suspect, reportedly just 16 or 17 years old, fired on the officers, died later of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. A woman related to the suspect, reported tonight to be his mother, was taken to hospital with life-threatening injuries and remains in serious but stable condition tonight. Upon arrival, the two patrol members went inside the building, approached the suite, and were shot by a male subject. At this time, all indications are they did not have a chance to discharge their firearms. Again, the two officers are 35-year-old Constable Travis Jordan and 30-year-old Constable Brett Ryan. Jordan was an Edmonton police officer dubbed Snow Angel after he helped a woman brush snow off her car instead of giving her a ticket back in March of 2020 in those early days of the pandemic. The driver, Jessica Schmigelski, shared his act of kindness on social media, and that became a huge story about just how touching that act had been. And a longtime friend of Constable Ryan is remembering him tonight. Uh, He was a minor league referee, hockey referee, and a pillar of the community. Darcy Carter had this to say. Brett loved being a police officer. (laughs) Every time we had the opportunity to, to work a game together, you know, I'd always ask him how it's going and his face would light up and on uh, his duty to serve the, the community. And uh, that's something that I'll, I'll never forget was just his face lighting up when he talked about his job. 
reports tonight say Ryan is survived by his wife, Ashley, who is currently expecting their first child. It marks another tragic day. We've talked about this on the show before. For police forces across the country, seven officers have been killed in the line of duty in the past six months alone uh, across the country, including in Ontario, B.C., and now in Alberta. Well, joining me now is retired Edmonton police officer Dan Jones. He's a criminologist and the associate chair of Justice Studies at Norquest College in Edmonton. Dan, thank you. Thank you for having me. Always, always an inexplicably tough day for, for any police service. But, uh, you know, watching the images of, of people standing to attention uh, in Edmonton tonight, hard to describe. Yeah, it's one of those things where um, it's surreal. It's humbling. The fact that, you know, um, police officers, all the other hardworking men and, and women and, and individuals in the Edmonton Police Service who continue to take calls after this event occurred. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of times we don't think about is that the the policing still goes on, even in light of a tragedy, unlike many other workplace deaths where we can shut down a job site. These folks got to keep keep on keeping on. And investigating this, this right? I mean, this was something that would have to be investigated as well. You know, I, I've often been told there's no such thing as a routine call, right? There is no such thing. Would they have known what, what was happening when they arrived? Would they have known enough about what was going on inside when they got there? The, the, with the two members who passed, who passed on? Yes, yes. Yeah, they, you know, it comes in as a family fight. You, you get as much detail as the call gives you. Um, and you walk into these situations, and oftentimes they are not at all what it seems to be on the call. So it's one of those things where, yeah, you, you go in prepared for anything and it just seems like this was a, an ambush attack based on what Chief McPhee has said. Um, and ambush attacks do happen. Uh, I started thinking about it and you look at Moncton, uh, Maristhorpe, yeah. um, even Ezio Ferron was, it would have been considered an ambush attack by the way that that happened. And these things are just almost impossible to predict. Yeah, and the suspect, uh, just 16 or 17 years old, too, right? I mean, there's so many parts of, there's so many questions to answer here. I mean, I think, I think as the answers were probably sadly simple, but just a young man. Yeah, and I start to look at, I look at all of our systems, right? Um, when you start to think about, you know, the impact of trauma or the events that happens in someone's life, um, has this individual, you know, were there issues in school, were there issues in these, all these things? And we start to really, need to really, start focusing our systems on ensuring safety and ensuring people are well um, and addressing issues, whatever those issues are. And we don't know because it's so early on, but I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to, I would make a guess that this isn't the first time this individual's had experiences uh, like, you know, in, in this, this type of a issue where they've had issues in the past that maybe have been, fa- they've been failed by other systems resulting in this tragic ending. Yeah, and two two officers, obviously young men. Um, you know, just the impact of their loss too, because you're just looking at them. You know that that could that could have been anyone on that force, right? Anyone could have responded to that call. A hundred percent, and I and I, you know, I I I was speechless this morning. I was devastated. Uh, I and I know I've spoken to several members in the organization that shared the same thing because you're a hundred percent right. This is the potential of every single day when you, when you strap on that uniform, um, that you walk into a situation that, that is, um, it's deadly and it doesn't happen thankfully often, but it is happening far too often in the Canadian context. As you said, I think seven in the last six months. 
Yeah, rare in Edmonton, though. Thank, thankfully, but I mean that doesn't. It's no comfort today, but but rare in Edmonton too. This is not something you see often in your city. No, uh, in my 25 year career, um, we had lost one member, and that was Dan Woodall. Um, mm-hmm. Prior to that was Ezio Frone in 1990, and prior to that, I can't even. I don't even know the year. And then all of a sudden, eight years later, you have two members murdered which is tragic and it's it's devastating to the membership and it's devastating to the community. What happens now with an investigation such as this? We we the, you know the suspect is uh, took his own life. Uh, I imagine they'll want to speak to the the mom, the woman if she's if she indeed survives. But what's there left to be done now? What do we need to know? There needs to be well first of all needed deter- hopefully determine the reasons why even with the suspect deceased it'd be you know you'd want to get down to how this happened why this happened what led up to it could we prevent it uh, and then there will be fatality inquiries later down the road on to on to what could have been done differently what could we have done to prepare people better and all of those those events come as as you know as the the things go down and it, it's you know trying to get answers for the families to have some understanding of what happened and why it happened um, and that's not necessarily going to create any healing, but it's going to, you know, answer some questions that I'm sure that the families definitely have. Right. And I, I guess we'll want to look into the alleged uh, gunman as well to figure out what his background was. Where did the gun come from? There's many questions, I imagine, tonight as well. Still left to be answered. Absolutely. Um, Dan, we were talking about this a bit earlier. This is uh, seven now in the line of duty, seven officers who've been killed in just the past six months. Yeah. I mean, what's what's happening? Because if you're watching from the outside, it feels like somehow violence has escalated. Violence against police has escalated in a way that is is alarming. Well, I think one of the things you can look at is the legitimacy of how police are seen. And in, in, in you look at research by Tom Tyler and Justice Tangaby and so many others that shows that the police are seen as legitimate power holders. It's less likely that people are going to do you know harm to them with the two, you know, the discourse after the tragic and terrible murder of George Floyd and the calls for defund the police, there has been, you know, the, a lot of the media mainstream and or social media has been very negative on policing and almost delegitimize it to some degree. And potentially the impact of that is people think that it's okay to act out in a violent way against the police. And I think that's something that we really have to start to really think about and rectify is, you know, the image that the police have in the community. And absolutely, is there necessities of police reform for sure? But at the same time, the vast majority of police officers are doing their very best to protect the community as we, and, and, then, and then giving the sacrifice that these two gentlemen and these two um, brave members gave um, to the city of Edmonton today. Yeah. And this is not the first time of late where it's been, and you mentioned it, it's, it feels like it was an ambush. There was no contact here. This was not a situation that spiraled out of control. This was a situation that appears, at least at first glance, to have been out of control before it began. And, and, that, and that is alarming in of itself. Absolutely. It's, it's those events. And, and like I said, we've had them before in Canada. We see them much more in the United States, but it's these ambush killings of police officers that are, are extremely disturbing and and, you know, we don't know the why, and we may never know because this, this, the individual is young and, and the young person who did this is passed on. But maybe there's going to be some ways for the investigators to determine a why in this event. What would you like the rest of us to be thinking tonight? I mean, you spent a long time with the Edmonton Police Service. You know this service inside out. What would you like the, what would you like the rest of us to be thinking about tonight when we see the stories of these two young men and the sacrifice that they've made? 
I just want to, you know, honor and all of the, the all of the members that are currently working tonight that came into work after this event, put on a uniform, and have gone out and and to to protect and serve the community. And I also think uh, deeply, and this was a conversation that I had with my wife today, was the fact that over the years she had to put up a wall, always worried that that doorbell was going to ring. If I was when I was gone and thinking about all the police officers, partners, spouses, families that have that little bit of fear every time their spouses, friends, families, loved ones go into this job to protect society. And then sometimes the unthinkable happens. And that's what happened here in Edmonton. Yeah. Yeah, as I was saying earlier, I, I looked at the pictures of the two of them today and thought that that really could have been anybody, right? That could have been any two officers responding to what was not any, an uncommon kind of call. No, my oldest daughter turns 30 this year, and I and I see these these two young men, and I'm like, this is a tragic loss of so many things that could have been, right? Like this, this you know, they're not going to get to see their baby be born, right? These are the things like police officers are human beings with lives and loved ones. And I think sometimes we in society take for granted um, the sacrifices that they make. Dan Jones, uh, thank you so much. And, and my condolences to the entire Edmonton Police Force family tonight. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. It's been a sad day. It's been a, a day of mourning in Edmonton. We've been talking about the death of those two young constables today, 35-year-old Travis Jordan, 30-year-old Constable Brett Ryan, uh, shot and killed in the line of duty today while responding to a family violence call. Here's what we know at this hour. Um, reports suggest that the gunman was either 16 or 17 years old. He took his own life. Um, and that his mom was also hurt and is in hospital tonight. So a family violence situation that leaves many, many questions unanswered tonight. Uh, but one thing we do know, of course, is the loss of these two officers has struck very hard on the Edmonton Police Force and police forces right across the country. Keep in mind, as we were talking about in the previous half hour, this is now seven police officers in the past six months in this country that have been killed in the line of duty, several of them ambushed in some way. Uh, no time to respond, no time to talk, no time to negotiate. These are situations they've walked into, it seems, and right away have fallen victim to whomever was waiting. Um, Edmonton's mayor, Amarjeet Sohi, today said, of course, that it is, it is a tough time for his town. Today is a very difficult and sad day. Every single day, police officers put their lives at risk to help protect the public. Every day, families of the police officers send their loved ones off to duty. Alberta's public safety minister, Mike Ellis, is also expressing his sympathy. He's a former police officer, and he says, of course, the deaths of these two constables hits very close to home. Every day, police officers across Alberta put their uniforms on, uh, they protect and they serve their communities. The sudden and tragic death of these two Edmonton Police Service officers reminds us again how dangerous uh, police officers constantly face on a daily basis. Independent Senator representing Alberta, Paula Simons, is a former Edmonton journal journalist as well and columnist, and she joins me now. A tough day, a tough day for Edmonton, Paula. You know, it really is. And it's, you know, I don't know how to put this. Up until now, the Edmonton Police Service 
has been blessedly lucky that there have been very few of their officers who have been killed in the line of duty in this kind of way. Uh, Daniel Woodle was murdered, mm-hmm. murdered in, in 2015 by a freeman on the land, uh, you know, hate monger. Daniel Woodle was with the uh, city of Edmonton Hate Crimes Unit, uh, went to the home to make an arrest, uh, was shot, and then the man blew up his house. And before that, the you know the only other shooting in you know in recent memory was Ezio Ferron, who was shot and killed in 1990, um, trying to apprehend a suspect in a bank robbery, Albert Fulston. And before that, the, the, you know, the last uh, RCM, the last Edmonton police officer murdered uh, was in 1919. Right, way back. So, yeah. so you know, I mean, it, it, this is such because this is not something that Edmonton is used to. Um, and it's, I think it's even more horrifying because what we're hearing, these are unconfirmed reports, the police have not confirmed them, but a number of media outlets have said that the shooter was, was a teenage boy. Um, and I think this is, it makes what is an unspeakable tragedy even more gut-wrenching because in the case of Daniel Little, he was killed by an extremist. In Ezio Ferron's case, he was shot and killed by a bank robber. And, you know, when we think back to the murder of the four RCMP officers uh, west of Edmonton at, at Rochefort Bridge, they were ambushed and killed in cold blood by a career criminal, James Roscoe. And in this case, the shooter is a 16-year-old boy. I mean, this isn't, this isn't a premeditated crime. This isn't uh, a, a crime committed by a stone-cold killer. And so, you know, when you think that, you know, the, the younger of the two constables was 30. I mean, he wasn't that much older than the shooter. And so it's just, it's just tragic in every possible dimension. Yeah. So, and so many questions tonight left still unanswered. I mean, there'll be time to answer those questions for sure, but you're right. I mean, the first thing that jumps out, of course, is the, is the young age of the constables themselves. Um, the, I mean, there, I've often been told and often been corrected. There is no such thing as a routine call, but you know, the kind of call one gets more often than not sort of a, you know, a violence call within the home. And then this is the outcome. And then we learn that the suspected shooter not only is his mom apparently reportedly in hospital in bad condition, but also took his own life. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so many questions. What, what questions are on your mind tonight, Paula? Well, you know, it's a truism, but I think it's a truism grounded in truth that domestic complaints are some of the most dangerous for police officers because they go into a volatile situation, not knowing on knowing what's happening. But I think it was interesting that I think but a lot of people, when we first heard the news this morning, jumped to the conclusion that this was uh, a spousal relationship, yeah, a relationship yes. of, 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 of a partner. So, you know, when you hear that it's a, a child and a parent, that's so much more painful because, we, you know, we, we don't know what was going on in this boy's life. We don't know if he had a history of mental illness. We don't know if he had a history of addiction. We don't know what prompted the violence. Uh, between uh, mother and child, uh, I, I guess I should say between child and mother. Mm-hmm. But you know, until we know some of those things, and frankly, we we may never get the answers because there will be no trial. There will be potentially a fatality inquiry. But you know, we we go to bed tonight not knowing what on earth set in train the you know the the domino of of calamities that happened today. I mean, I, I yeah. walked past that apartment building last night, walking my Did dog. You? 
about right. two or three hours before this would have happened. So, you know, when I when I saw the news this morning, I just felt absolutely sick to my stomach because this is this is my neighborhood. Just just quiet, sort of your run of the mill well, apartment complex. You know, I mean, yeah, it's a it's a it's an older apartment complex. It's you know, it, it's a walk up uh, apartment building across the street from one of Edmonton's, I think, Edmonton's oldest shopping mall. So, you know, it's not, you know, it, it, it's not an elegant apartment building. No. The uh, apartments are affordable <laughs> ones, but this is still you know, not the kind of thing that you expect to happen. No, no. I mean, we were hearing neighbors talk today about just how, how, how absolutely shocked everyone was. The other thing I found too, just some of the, and this relates to the, to the story of the two officers who were killed North of Toronto uh, back in the fall is this, this what's happened of late is again, these, these situations, I mean, officers aren't even drawing their weapons. They're essentially walking into a situation where already they're in, in mortal, under mortal threat without knowing it in a situation yeah, I, that's uh, supposed to be, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, a real question to be asked here. This isn't the United States. It is not typical for a 16 year old to have access to a gun. I mean, and that is, that is a question that I really want to know the answer to. Where did this weapon come from? How did this child have access to it? Because you're right. I mean, even if you're called and told there's, you know, there's a, a difficulty between a parent and a teenage boy, you, you, know, you might go in expecting that there would be punches thrown or even a knife pulled. But I don't think that those officers would have had an expectation. You know, this, is, this isn't the United States, that there would, that there would be a gun I- involved. And I think that's the thing that makes this so shocking as well. Yeah, and, and and given all your time as well working as a as a reporter, I mean, these are the kind of stories. At some point, you would have talked about and covered back in the day stories about domestic, you know, domestic situations, what the background is. Again, I just feel like there's so many questions to be answered tonight, and yet at the end of it, you're just left with a picture of those two officers. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think when I started my career, one of the very first cases I ever covered, one of the very first cases I ever covered was a high profile. Uh, domestic uh, murder where a, a, a very uh, respected and uh, successful lawyer killed his wife on, Chris, on New Year's Eve. And it was a cause celeb because, you know, they were members of Edmonton's, you know, sort of Tony establishment. And it taught me early on that class and the neighborhood you live in are not a predictor of anything, that domestic violence can happen in any family in any part of the city. But it took me a few years to realize that, that not all domestics involve that, you know, that husband-wife, common-law partner dynamic, that oftentimes of late, I seem to you know, recall covering stories where you know, uh, a daughter killed her mother, a horrible one where a mother killed her daughter. Ones where brothers, uh, you know, a brother killed another brother. So, you know, we talk about domestic violence, and I think we often see it in that partner paradigm. But really, when we're talking about family violence, uh, it can be very complicated, and it's not always the stereotypical storyline that we that we come to expect. I don't know; you can get worse, but what I'm seeing happen to, to some of my colleagues and some of my younger colleagues 
who are just coming up, you know, this difficult path of, of fighting for a spot in, in this business. I, I, I hope I collectively can help some way move this meter forward because what the sentence ended up being was ridiculous. It was a slap in my face and a slap on his wrist. A very passionate Jody Vance with us last night, the Vancouver broadcaster, whose name you may recognize, uh, shared a very private story, a very private struggle that she'd been going through for several years, uh, a torrent of online abuse that started back in 2015 and ended with a 12-month probation sentence for a gentleman from uh, Chilliwack named Richard Oliver, who agreed uh, to a guilty plea of criminal harassment. But it really exemplifies a much broader problem we're having right now uh, in society. Uh, The Governor General, Mary Simon, even came out to talk about it on International Women's Day a little earlier this month, sharing some of the abusive emails her office, the Governor General, her office receives. Uh, Paul, I know you've, as a journalist, as a senator now, you're, you're on the pointy edge of this. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, what are we, this story seems to typify so much that's going on and it feels like it's just gotten worse, that it's not getting better post sort of post pandemic. Well, you know, this story chills me to the bone because I think it's really important that we differentiate lots of women in public life. Lots of us get crap mail like this all the time. I mean, you know, the, the stuff that the Governor General Mary, Mary May Simon posted last week was just horrific. The racism, the sexism, uh, the, the ageism, it was just it was pathetic. But what Jody Vance underwent is something a little bit different, because it's one thing to get anonymous mail from trolls, some of whom, quite frankly, may not even be in Canada. You know, what I came to realize over the last few months that I was on Twitter was that lots of the people who were writing hateful things to me weren't even Canadian. They might not even been real people. You know, it's, it's, it's just generated garbage. But what right. she had was a stalker. And I'm mm-hmm. shocked. I'm shocked at the lightness of the penalty. Because once the police went to the trouble of tracking down her stalker, arresting him, documenting a years-long pattern. I mean, she wasn't just sending her mean letters. He was following her around, taking her picture, threatening her child. I mean, that is in an entirely different class than people writing and telling me I'm fat and ugly, right? You know, like, that's fine, whatever. It's an entirely different thing to be stalked. And I think that, that the you know, I guess I have to be careful. I'm a senator, and this case, I mean, maybe the sentence will be appealed. I don't want to just yeah. prejudice anything. But, but honest, honest to goodness, I mean, it's bad enough that lots of us have to put up with just a relentless river of 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 hate and nonsense and you know and and just you know meanness pettiness but to be to to have somebody over the course of years tracking your behavior taking pictures of you and you know and it's tricky because lots of these people are very clever they don't make overt threats i mean at the beginning of my career i would actually get people threatening to kill me and then we would call the police and the police would go talk to the person and the person would say oh you know i was just really upset i didn't mean it but you know these days people are a little more sophisticated so i get mail that says you know i hope you'll die soon well you can't report that threat i mean so it's it's oftentimes it's couched in ways that are not that are not actionable by police but this story i found absolutely chilling yeah, I mean, and I think, and I think calling it harassment is not. I mean, 
there's a difference between the the bozo who comes up to a, a camera crew in the street and says the thing that I'm not going to say on live radio. You know, right. You know. Yes. You yes. Know, I that, know. I've seen many video, many videos. Many of my colleagues have fallen. Have been uh, abused with right. that one. Yes, indeed. Right. So, like, so some some flipping Yahoo who yells sexist abuse at you in the street. I mean, that's that's harassment. The the kind of mail that women in public life get. Sure, that's fine. But to me, I, I think we diminish the the danger when we start to conflate just rude behavior with stuff that is significantly more threatening. Yeah. I mean, Jody referred to it as we were walking, talking through it last night, referred to it essentially as, as terrorism. I mean, that she was being terrorized on purpose by somebody who just a constant torrent of abusive emails, just a never ending. Yeah. It can go the other way too. I have a a colleague who I shan't name, who at the time was writing for a, a mid-market paper in Southern Alberta. And she had a guy who loved her and believe me, that was every bit as creepy, right? You know, uh, somebody who thinks that they have a relationship with you, uh, somebody who's sending you love letters that can be every bit as, as disturbing. Uh, So, you know, for, for women in public life, I mean, I've been lucky. I've never, I've never picked up somebody like this, but you know, somebody who's disturbed, Somebody who is obsessed, somebody who fixates on a on a woman in public life, either a sexual obsession or a hatred obsession. It's different than just the background noise of mean tweets. Yeah, it'd be nice to get rid of all of it, though, to be frank. I mean, I, I don't know. Well, I find it, well, it, I, it, I, you know, it I'm a would. middle-aged, I'm a middle-aged white guy, right? So I don't get a lot of hate mail. I mean, I get a bit, but not much. And I look at what's happening to other people. And I think, it, you know, it's such a sad statement about the about the, the state of things that people feel the liberty to be so abusive to other people, strangers, women, particularly. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean, it is, it is shocking. I mean, I, I, as I think, you know, Ben, I loved Twitter. Yes. I had a Twitter. I loved your problem. Twitter account. I loved your I Twitter had, account. I, <laughs> yeah. I had sixty-five thousand followers. I'd put a you lot did. of brand building into Twitter. And when I left journalism to become a senator, I loved using Twitter to explain the Senate to people, to live tweet what was happening in the Senate, to you know, to have debates and discussions. And I really valued when people challenged me and 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 critiqued me. But I quit Twitter on January 1st. It was my New Year's resolution because the noise to signal ratio had just become so overwhelmingly toxic. And I thought, you know, I I couldn't block people as a senator. I didn't feel that that was appropriate. Uh, So I never, I I almost never blocked anyone. Uh, But I I just thought, you know what, Uh, post Elon Musk, it had become such a trash fire. I just stepped away. And some people were really angry. I mean, I, I, I announced that I was leaving on Twitter and then I turned it off. So I don't know what people said. But, you know, when I when I went on Facebook to say that I was leaving Twitter, people got really angry with me and said, you know, you, you know you're a public figure. You have an obligation to be there. And I thought, no, 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 I'm pretty sure I don't. Actually, um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Mastodon, which is a very lovely space. Uh, yeah. You know, I I have a YouTube channel and a podcast, and I give probably more interviews than my staff thinks is perfectly good for me. Uh, I'm certainly not hiding from people, but I just finally decided that I had no ethical obligation to be on Twitter as a punching bag. 
No, and, and that in itself is a, is a sad statement. The effects of it, you know, I, I miss your Twitter account. But yes, it's it, Albert, Paula Simons, as always, thank you for, uh, thank you for coming on and, and chatting about it. It's been a tough day, I know. So my condolences to everyone yeah. no, in I and mean, around where you I are. Mean, I, and I, you know, and in Edmonton tonight, I mean, everybody, everybody is going to think about Brett Ryan and Travis Jordan for a long time. Uh, their deaths leave a, a hole in our community uh, every day police officers go to work not knowing what's going to happen on the other side. Uh, it's difficult, dangerous work. And sometimes police officers make mistakes too. But in this yeah. case, you know, I mean, in this case, this is nothing but tragedy from absolute start to finish. And my heart goes out to everybody warning for Brett and Travis tonight. This next story is going to be an interesting one because we've all faced it. My wife and I went to a restaurant back in December and it was so loud. It was so loud we couldn't hear each other speak, we, let alone have a conversation. The food was okay, pricey. We were out of there in a flash because it was so loud. And no, I wouldn't go back there no matter how food, good, good the food was. You too may have noticed how loud it is in restaurants these days. Part of it is the design, you know, gone are the booths and the carpets and the tablecloths. It's all kind of minimalist now and metal and slate floors and so on. It's more like being in a kind of really fancy high school cafeteria, acoustically at least. But some places are so loud, it's not just annoying. It can pose a risk to our hearing health, especially for staff. Now, my next guest lives with permanent hearing loss and wears hearing aids. So finding restaurants where conversation was possible and background noise was kept to a dull roar was paramount for him. So he started a noise level measurement app called Soundprint that allows you to measure the decibels and share them with others in eating establishments. When he looked into Canadian restaurants, here's what he found. During peak times on busy days, only 30% were good for conversation. 40% were so loud they could damage hearing over time. In fact, noise levels are now a top complaint among diners in restaurants uh, and, and even included sometimes in the reviews. Greg Scott is the founder of Soundprint, a sound level measurement app, and he joins me now from New York. Greg, thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell me a bit about the origins of this, because this came like so many great ideas. This came from a personal desire to find something in your case. Yes, it actually came from a desire to find love, actually. Wow. And uh, I live in uh, New York City. There's so many places that are just noisy in this world. And I have hearing loss. And so finding a quieter venue, not necessarily quiet, but quieter than the average typical venue, is important to me because I wanted to make sure I'd be able to hear my date and be able to connect with them. And... So when I be setting up a date, I would go to Google, I would go to Yelp, I would go to Foursquare, I would go to Open Table. I looked up any type of source of information on potentially what could be lead to a quiet place. And then I would go to this venue, a restaurant, a bar, a coffee shop, and literally like 99% of the time, the places were rarely ever quiet. So 99% of the time, they were just simply too noisy for a whole variety of reasons, whether there was just a lot of background music, there was just poor acoustic settings, maybe the table spacing was too um, close to each other, the way they positioned the speakers. And it just became very frustrating when I would show up thinking a place would be quiet and then I would need to deal with all the noise and try to concentrate and put in a lot of listening effort to hear my data. Led to some awkward dates just 
not being able to feel connected to somebody just on a basic level. And so when I did find a quiet venue, I got really excited. I would put the name of the venue on a list, and then I would whip out a decibel meter. There's plenty of them available on smartphones. And I wanted to take an objective level to make sure it really was quiet or moderate uh, sound level, because as somebody who has a hearing aid, you amplify the sound. So you never know if it's amplified too high or too low compared to somebody with normal hearing. So I was developing these so-called quiet lists in a city. And the first city was New York. And I put together these lists and my friends, those with hearing loss and those without, and those with vision loss, those with autism, sensory disorders, or people who just um, wanted a quieter venue kept asking me for these lists. And then I was traveling, and I wanted to find uh, quieter restaurants to meet up with friends and whatnot. And I didn't know anything in these cities I was traveling to. And I thought, wouldn't it be good if we could all crowdsource sound level measurements to find quieter venues, promote them, as well as see the noisier one to avoid? And that's kind of the epiphany of what happened. And it's a very app that focuses on two simple essential functions. And the first is the ability of somebody to take a sound level measurement and the app will tell you basically whether a place is conducive and good for conversation and whether it's safe or it endangers the hearing health of somebody. And a lot of people, they take a sound level measurement, they look at the numbers bouncing up and down and they, you know, they're listening to their environment. They see the sound level category of whether it's quiet, moderate, loud or very loud and they often will show it to a venue manager and say look the place is objectively too loud can do something about the noise they'll also submit it to uh, the sound publicly accessible database for all of us to see so that's a very good empowerment tool it's a good advocacy tool contributing to the community to help the world be acquired a place over time and then the other function is simply a search function on everybody's submission, then you can search by whatever sound level you prefer so that your expectations of the sound level match what you're looking for. It is a wonderful idea because it's not our imagination. We're not hearing things, right? It is louder now in restaurants than it was in the past. There have been surveys done on this. If you talk to people dined in restaurants 30, 40 years ago, they will probably universally tell you that restaurants used to be typically designed for, A, the food and social connection. And somewhere along the way, due to a lot of architectural trends of open uh, seating, open kitchen, doing away with uh, materials that absorb sound, a more industrial look, and making these restaurants very entertainment-like based, kind of a mix between a restaurant and a bar, Places just became louder and louder over time, and there really wasn't much out there like uh, tools that people could use to really help uh, gauge whether, you know, the impact of the sound and how loud it was, and people didn't really feel like they had the tools and empowerment to complain about it, to give them the feedback. We did a survey of SoundCoin a few years ago where we found out that uh, at least 52% of the public who have eaten out at a restaurant and didn't like the noise, never came back to a venue. So, like, there wasn't that feedback loop that was going on. But places are just getting louder and louder, and it's not your imagination. It's not somebody getting more cranky over time. It's not somebody who's having more trouble hearing hearing as you get older, which can happen. But it's also that these places are just getting louder. 
Yeah, how loud are we talking? Because I was looking at some of the stats that you had, and this is applies to sort of busy nights, crowded restaurant, but that only about three in 10, 30% are actually suitable for conversation. And four in 10, I think you found, were dangerously loud. I mean, how loud are we talking in terms of decibel level in a busy night in a what you now consider to be a loud restaurant? We're talking about restaurants here. So nightlife, where there's like bars, the price is going to be a lot louder than the uh, measurements I'm about to give out. Right. But in Montreal, the average restaurant during peak hours, which is when you, most people are going to be out, is 81.2 decibels. So that's 80 decibels of threshold by which you really are beginning to endanger the hearing health that you have. And when you look at the um, other cities, Vancouver and Toronto, and just the Canadian generally, the average is about 78.5 to like wow. 78.8, which is 79 decibels. So 75 decibels and below is where you're able to have a conversation. Between uh, 75 and 80 decibels is when things are loud conversation difficult, you're getting into dangerous territory there. So these places are really loud. Four out of 10 restaurants in Canada are endangering the hearing health. Don't mean to paint such a depressing no, uh, but, picture, but, but it but, is a serious rising public it, health issue. It is. For people who may not be aware what that might mean, what is 80 decibels or 79 decibels? What does that compare to if you're sitting in a restaurant and that's the noise level you're dealing with as you're having dinner? I would think of it as a vacuum cleaner that is right next to you. There's a difference between a vacuum cleaner 10 feet, 15 feet away from you, but I would think of it as a vacuum cleaner that happens to be right next to your ears. Wow, that's loud. It just overpowers everything. Now, you've created this app, so you're getting a lot of a lot of feedback. You're, you're building a lot of data. What has, do, do you know what the reaction has been from restaurateurs, for instance, when they're approached with and you say or patrons say, wait a second, like this is this is really loud in here. We make it very clear that our efforts, our, our goals is not to go out and call out these restaurants. It's really to bring awareness to their attention and help work with them. So we have a new noise complaint feature where a user can mark a noise complaint along with their submission. And then we will contact the venue, alerting them to this, give them inexpensive tips, or put them, you know, let them know that their customers want a more desirable uh, acoustic atmosphere, and then give them inexpensive tips and the opportunity to get put in touch with an acoustic professional to help optimize your acoustic. A play can actually be loud, and it can still be acoustically treated. Right. And if that's the case, you can have a conversation. The energy, the sound energy in the room doesn't drain your body, uh, even though the objective sound level may still be loud. So there are things that uh, these restaurant venue managers can do to help improve the sonic experience. So you can still have a bumping, exciting atmosphere. I mean, as long as it's not like above 80 decibels, anywhere between like 75 and 80, which is loud, they'll be optimized for conversation. Yeah, it's interesting that that in these days you think there's so much attention paid to menus. We're, we talk about food all the time. There's a lot of attention paid to decor and lighting, but I don't feel like there's a lot of attention paid to acoustics in restaurants these days. Yeah, the uh, I think the reason is that venue managers or people who design the restaurants or come up with the concept don't think about sound typically, and they usually come to notice it when, A, they have trouble hearing themselves or they start to get noise complaints and requests from customers to go to quieter areas of the table. But those venue managers or those restaurateurs that do pay attention to sound, they benefit immensely. Um, 
Panera, the fusion, more casual yep. food. People comment about how wonderful the acoustics are. People go there to study. They, you know, they have conversations there compared to other casual food chains. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, one of the concerns you have here is that it is a slippery slope. If we get used to loud, then we'll get used to louder, right? That 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 they, yeah. that they keep moving the needle, so to speak, pun yes. intended. Yeah. You know, the places are getting louder in part because people want to create this bustling, loud atmosphere. Some people, you know, they comment that, you know, to keep the young people in and, you know, push the older people out to make it more fun. But what's not being said is that a lot of these decision makers in these venues, the person who sucks the music level and the design, they don't know what constitution comp- comprises a safe or normal sound level environment to what would be incredibly deafening and excessively loud 30, 40 years ago today is probably considered normal. And it's just become normalized everywhere and the needle has moved. The benefit of sound printing is that you're able to capture that, you're able to timestamp it, you're able to put a venue name with that sound level submission and you submit it to a public database and it puts the venue managers on notice, it puts the ward on notice that more and more people are paying attention to sound. And then there's a reason, there's a market incentive reason for them to pay attention to it. And that's kind of like the goal of collecting all this data is to disseminate it, but also to push the venue manager to start thinking about it more, to care about it more, and slowly, step by step, the world will become a little bit quieter. Greg Scott, thank you so much for sharing all of this with me tonight. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to talk family siblings in particular this half hour. That's always been the happy. I always thought Sister Sledge was sort of the, you know, Sisters United doing well. And of course, sibling relationships are far more complex than that. There's where there's where too, by the way. Um, but first, let's get to a few texts that have come in, texts that have come in uh, over the course of the evening about some of the things we've been asking about. Uh, the first one I spoke about earlier was in honor of the two Edmonton police officers who died in the line of duty today. And one of them was well known for having performed a real nice, a real act of kindness um, back in 2020, uh, getting out his snow brush and cleaning off a, a woman's windows after pulling her over for having a car covered in snow. This was the early days of the pandemic. People were feeling really out of place or really out of whack. And he did something very kind for her and she was forever grateful. They actually managed to get together at one point and thank each other. And it was a big, big story in Edmonton. Um, so I asked, you know, let's in, in honor and for a police for police officers across the country morning tonight. Let's try and send some good, some positive stories their way. And I thought, tell me some positive stories about interactions you've had with the police. Uh, one listener in Alberta said, please perform a deliberate act, deliberate act of kindness every time they put their uniform on. Denny in Calgary says, first, I want to publicly send out my condolences to the families and co-workers of the two EPS constables. My most recent positive encounter with police was back in December 2022 in Calgary with a female officer that I regret not asking her name. My wife and youngest daughter were the last to leave a church Christmas party after hanging around to do cleaning and got pulled over within about five minutes of leaving. It was around midnight. We were all tired and I didn't know why we were being pulled over until we were told our registration had expired. I was expecting a stiff fine and didn't even try to talk my way out of it since we were two months overdue. After looking at my driver's license and valid insurance, she said, it's almost Christmas and let us off without a warning. I was shocked and tongue tied and only managed to say, you're a sweetheart. Here's my public thank you to her Next business day, I went to the registry and was happy 
to pay that fee for a change. Denny, thank you for that story. If you have any others to share along those lines, please send them in. 1-877-399-9898. 1-877-399-9898 is our text line. Let me know who you are and where you are. We're sharing uh, good stories tonight about times that police officers have gone out of their way to help and left you feeling better. Um, on the topic of loud venues, we have come across that in our vicinity, and it has a generous number of places to go for a special occasion. It's a choice of going on not so busy a time. Yeah, that's good advice. If you're worried about how loud it is, go when it's not loud. Right. Families, siblings. I mean, they can shape so much. I'm an only child. I do have a stepsister, so I know something about it, but it's different, right? You don't get the roles. You don't get, you know, each parent sort of takes care of their own kid to some extent. So it's not quite the same as having siblings. I grew up around lots of people with siblings, even with my own family, obviously. And I saw the beauty of it, and I saw some of the detriment of it as well. Um, you know, it can really have an impact. Your relationship with siblings can be the often the longest in your lifetime. They start when you're born, they end long after your parents are gone, and they can really shape the way that many other relationships you have later in life are handled. Um, Dr. Karen Gale Lewis is a family therapist with 50 years experience, and she looks at the, the dynamic of those relationships from birth order and rivalry to parental favoritism. It can all have a lasting impact, good and bad. And she also explores ways to, for people to help kind of Find peace with those relationships, perhaps reconcile those relationships if they're broken, make them better if they're not. And her soon-to-be-released book is called Sibling Therapy, The Ghosts from Childhood That Haunt Your Clients' is Love and Work. It's written, of course, for therapists, but also written as a version for the rest of us. And Karen Gale Lewis joins me now. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. I'm delighted to be here. You know, I think anyone, um, I mean, I was mentioning I have a step-sibling. I think anyone who has siblings understands the profound impact of that relationship on your life. You you know, you have those relationships probably longer than you have any other relationship um, going through your going through one's lifetime. And it has a huge impact. And, you know, sometimes work, love can either blossom or die in the vine based on that experience. That's exactly right. But I want to say first, before anything else, that yesterday, for the umpteenth time probably, I heard something that many of your listeners will recognize. This sister was talking to me, and this woman was talking to me about her sisters, and she said, every time we're together, it's like we're 12 years old all over again. And that is what happens. You are right. It's the longest relationship. And while marriages are long, siblings are there before the marriage starts. There is something about when you were a child that your parents and you and each other give each other roles. I mean, whether you know it or not, there's the funny one, there's the comedian, there's the smart one, the ugly one, the troublemaker, the whatever, uh, the athlete. And those roles affect how they see each other as children. The one who is identifies the smart one, if there's an, another sibling, no family has two kids in the same role. So if one is smart, the other can't be smart. Uh, and that sets up a, a conflict that, as little children, sets up a, a conflict that they aren't even aware of. And people say that the problem is sibling rivalry. I don't think that's the issue. I don't think it's rivalry. What happens as a as a result of how you are treated by your parents with these roles and how you see each other, you develop what I call frozen images. Right. The four so components how, the four components of sibling ghosts, you call them. Yes. So how I see, 
I won't tell you about my older brother. I pick on my older brother so much. Poor Doug. (laughs) But when he wasn't being wonderful and loving to me, he was scaring the dickens out of me. Okay. And as an adult, every now and then, and I'm in my eight, he's in his 80s, I'm in my late 70s. Uh, I will see a look on his face and I will get a moment of, <gasps> wow. and then say, wait a minute, this is not, I'm not this seven years old. I'm not 10 years or 12 years old. This is, I'm not afraid of him. He's not going to hurt me. But that's the frozen image that how we felt about a sibling in the, those very early years, preschool, elementary school years, how we felt about them, idealized or uncomfortable, scary. They right. stay locked inside of us and can come up at any time, at any time in a relationship with a sibling in adulthood. In and you talked about crystallized rules already where, you know, you sort of, whether it's pecking order or, you know, family hierarchy or how you're seen or perceived by the rest of the family often will stay with you far after you've outgrown that image. Um, tell me a bit about unhealthy loyalty, because there's there's four components, right? I guess frozen images and crystallized rules are two of them. Uh, unhealthy loyalty is another one that you talked about. This is the biggest surprise to me in my work. I've been doing this over 50 years, and it's the biggest surprise when I bumped into this a number of decades ago, that if I'm supposed to be the cute one, Doug was the smart one. I'll still stick with Doug and me. Right. Doug was the smart one. I was the cute one. I wasn't supposed to be smart. He had that role. What often happens in families is the person with the in one role cannot feels disloyal if they change roles, if they go into the role of a sibling, whether it's being going from the bad kid to the good kid, or whether it's the smart to the 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 troublemaker to the smart one to the successful one. It it, it feels disloyal. So in fact, when I wrote my first book, I had to write my brother and get permission from him. Is it okay if I <laughs> Yeah because you're the smart one and now I've written a book. I you know I'm I, you know I've got all these credentials and I'm going to write a book and therefore you'll be seen as the smart. That's a right. you know that's a and that phenomenon continues right through life. Um tell me a bit about the impact that that has because you've mentioned and you talked about sort of the immediate impact when it comes to your relationship with your sibling and how a lot of what you've learned or experienced when you're much younger carries you through life or carries it stays with you through life but how does it impact other aspects of your life say work love all those other things all those other relationships we then have after that okay so the sibling who is the the cute one the athlete who's not the smart one is at work and has a chance for a promotion and sabotages people who self-sabotage themselves at work i would suggest you Start thinking, is there some disloyal, is there some sense that you are holding back a part of yourself because it's not loyal to your, your brother or your sister? The flip side is the one who's the smart one may feel, you know, I've always been smart. I've always been successful. I'm going to hold myself back now because I can see that my sibling is beginning to really grow professionally. So I will hold myself back so my sibling can become more successful than I, finally. The disloyalty, unhealthy, but it is loyalty. It's unhealthy, but it's loyalty. Karen, there are ways to break these. Clearly, the reason you've written this is there are ways to, to break these molds, undoubtedly. Yes, 
But one of the things that is helpful is being able to, if you can, together, sitting down and talking about where does this come from? What's really going on? Often brothers and sisters, and it isn't, I've used examples with sisters, but it's also brothers and sisters and brothers and brothers. What is it that you are saying that I am doing that you don't like? And listen. But that means the other one wants to say, what is it that I'm doing that you don't like? Usually what happens, they talk on top of each other and they're angry at each other and they repeat the same things they've always said. So one of the things I often suggest is for one part, one of them to write to the other, like on a real paper with a stamp and an envelope, you know, <laughs> old fashioned. Right. Old fashioned, right. And to say, I want to understand what's behind, what do you think I'm doing that is causing you to ha have such trouble with me? What happens is people, everyone wants to be heard. The problem is one has to be heard first, which means yeah. one has to listen first. Well, no one wants to be the one to listen. Everyone wants to say, well, here's what I'm so angry about. The idea of the letter allows one person to say, okay, I'm going to ask. You're going to tell me, if you will, on paper. And when I get it back, I will not challenge it. I won't disagree. I'll just say, I understand, or there are things I don't understand. Would you explain some more? And maybe have a couple of exchanges of letters back and forth right. before you get a chance to then say, okay, now here's what I'd like to say on my end. You're taking a bit of the uh, the immediacy and the emotion out of it, because when one writes a letter, one is often reflexive, right? When one reads a letter, one often is reflexive. So you're, you're creating some space whereby you're allowing people to understand each other without it all heating up very quickly, where oftentimes if there's a misunderstanding or it's a long-term yes. one, it probably gets pretty emotional pretty fast. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it is March, mid-March, Ides of March, I think. But April 10th is coming up soon, and April 10th is National Siblings Day. Right. And that's all. It started here in this country. Go online and find it if you want. It's all over the world now. It's a great time to start reconnecting with a sibling in a different way than you have before. And you mentioned something called Q-tip, which is quit taking it personally. <laughs> and and that's an interesting one because in my experience, and obviously I'm from a, family, you know, a relatively large family, and you see sibling battles and you as an outsider you watch them and think wow if you could just sort of clear the air i'm sure you'd figure out this this was all a misunderstanding that happened 20 some years ago and it's just you know rotted into what is 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 a dis dysfunctional relationship yes q t i p i love it q tip and it takes a lot of pressure off of someone to be able to say wait a minute i hear what this person is saying to me i hear what my sibling or my brother or sister is saying to me I don't think this has anything to do with me. So I think I'm going to let this one go. Just ignore it. Probably angry. At the bro My brother is probably angry at his wife or his kids or something. And I'm just going to ignore it at this moment and change the subject. Obviously, you can't do that all the time because some of the time it does have to do with you. But being able to decide when is it related to you and when that you need to get in and discuss and when is it not is really important. Siblings out there all have relationships of varying degrees of good and bad with the, with their siblings. What's the, what's the advice you give that sort of blanket advice for anyone who's having, you know, there'll always be difficulties in relationships, right? It's, it's human nature, but what's the one piece of advice you'd give to siblings out there who are going through a rough patch with another sibling and ultimately they would really like to make it better. Here's the advice. Remember research shows by the time you were in your sixties or seventies, you will have a better relationship. 
Why wait that long? Fix it now. And it is fascinating as people get older and, and their parents are gone, their kids are, are grown and their grandkids are grown and whatnot. Siblings, research has proven that siblings have grown, come back to each other because they are, they're the only ones when you look in the mirror, they see your young face. They see your 10 year old, your seven year old face. They don't see the 70 year old, 80 year old face. So keeping in mind that it's going to get better. So you might as well work on it now. Yeah. That's and, not what you expected. Because no, there's so many other things I could say, but that's that's sort of a, a broader. No, um, I think that's excellent advice. I mean, why wait for personal conflicts will not solve themselves, right? I think we know that they don't. And I'm yeah. not a therapist. Personal conflicts do not solve themselves. Someone ultimately has to extend an olive branch, even if they think they're wrong or they or think the other person is wrong. Um, and you're right. Why Why wait? Why wait? If you want to remedy something, do it now. Because as you mentioned, it's such an important relationship in people's lives. And having it not work has must have really detrimental outcomes. It does. And I've also seen in my work that problems in a sibling relationship gets transferred to the next generation. I've actually been fortunate enough to work with a family who were aware of four generations of sibling problems. So another little piece of advice would be to remember that the chances are the problem didn't start at the moment you think it started. You know, when she said this to me and I didn't like that, or he did this to me, chances are it's been sitting and festering for many, many years. So thinking about where might this have come from way back when, when we were little kids. I mean, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? To me, it does. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the, the quit taking it personally is probably the, the big one there because so often these mis- these these issues arise from things where it wasn't meant. You know, it, it, it's part of a far broader picture, and yet if you take it very personally, what are you left with? Right, you're left with it's all about me, and therefore I should be angry about this and never reconcile. The other thing that I would like to mention, if I've got time, is that. The relationships we have with our children is really like a first marriage with our siblings from early childhood. It's like a first marriage because it's the time when peers are living together. People always say you marry your mom or your dad. Well, that may be true, but more often than not, it is the relationship with your peers, with your siblings, how, what you learn about how to relate, how to fight, how to make up and whatnot is what you take into a love relationship. So if you're having problems in a love relationship, it may be that you're recreating a pattern of feeling put down or feeling bossed around or being the bossy one. That is a pattern of that you learned way, way back in early childhood. Yeah. And, and again, something something difficult to break if you're not aware of it. Uh, Dr. Karen Gale Lewis, your website, uh, please, if it, just so listeners will know where to find find your book. Okay. It's really difficult. It's Dr. Karen Gale Lewis. <laughs> And Gail, because I'm old, Gail is the original spelling G-A-I-L. So it's Dr. Karen, it's D-R, Dr. Right. Karen Gail Lewis. Dot com. Yes. Dot com. Well, yes. thank you so much for your time and your advice tonight. Thank you, Ben. This is fun. It's going to hit that farm. You may recognize that is the sound of a tornado. It's almost spring, and that means tornado season is approaching. Now, we often associate twisters with America, where there are more than 800 a year, and they can often be very devastating. But 
I mean, they have the most in the world by a wide margin. But we here in Canada, we're no stranger to the phenomenon. We rank second, a fact that I didn't really know. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? But I didn't really know that we were ranked second in the world. Last year, the Northern Tornadoes, Tornadoes Project at Western University recorded 117 tornadoes across this country, tying 2021 for the highest ever on record. That's up from 103 in 2020 and 72 in 2019. One of those twisters, one of the 117 last year, touched down in June in a Montreal suburb, killing one person and damaging as many as 100 homes. When I get on the car, I, I looked over here and I saw the tornado with all the material over the air. And by the direction I was looking, uh, I knew that it was my home. Yeah, they can be very destructive and deadly. But the majority of tornadoes that hit Canada actually touch down unnoticed and unseen. In fact, one of the reasons the numbers are up in recent years is not because we're seeing more tornadoes. It's because we're getting better at recording those that do, in fact, happen in more remote areas. A big part of that work is being done by the Northern Tornadoes Project I mentioned earlier. And it's not just about getting the numbers right. There's a lot more to this about why we should know. You know, forewarned is forearmed. Joining me now is Greg Kopp. He's the Impact WX Chair in Severe Storms, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Western, and he's the lead researcher with the Northern Tornadoes Project. Greg, thank you. Thanks for having me. This will strike Canadians as both, uh, I should have known this, and wow, we, we have the second most tornadoes around the world annually, which makes sense considering how many there are in the U.S., but those numbers have always been, you'd be forgiven for thinking the numbers have always been pretty low. We think they are really low, even though we're the second most in the world. I think that fact surprises a lot of people. And we founded the Northern Tor Tornadoes Project because we actually think there's more and we, we wanted to go find those missing tornadoes. You get the sense that, I mean, I think if I remember back, we used to, the official numbers were like 60-ish over, over the course of the year. Now, since you started your work, that's gone up. Uh, but what's going on? I, I guess we're not seeing more tornadoes. You're just finding more. We're just trying to find more. We, uh, our, our methods are using modern technology, and we're finding roughly double what, what was there before. And that's not unexpected. When you look at a map of tornadoes in Canada, it looks like where we live in the cities. And um, where there aren't people, we identified many fewer. And so we went out to try to find those. And modern technology is great for that. The, the, the weather radars are, are good for showing us where storms are and, and the satellite imagery that we can now, we can go and find tornadoes all over the country, even if no one's there. And, uh, and so that's really helped us a lot. Yeah, because there's a lot of no one's there in this country, right? <laughs> there are. <laughs> North of Superior, where there's just lakes and trees and fishing camps and, well, indigenous communities, right? But yeah, so we're finding them there too. It's amazing. Because the Ameri in America, I, I think the number is something like 800 per year, which is a huge number. And in Canada, again, it was you know a tenth of that for a very long time. What have you found? I, I gather that you, you think it should be closer to 150-ish, maybe even a little bit higher. That's right. Yeah. So one of my colleagues did a study um, using lightning data as a proxy and, uh, and then weighted it with population density and, and was able to work out that there should be something around 150 tornadoes per year in Canada. We're not sure we're capturing them all yet. Um, it's really difficult on the prairies. In farming regions, if nothing gets hit and no one was there, no one sees it. We're helped out by storm chasers in those areas, uh, which help quite a lot, but it's really hard to get the exact numbers in those regions. 
Where do they strike most commonly? I think if I remember back to last year, there was that we all learned the word derecho last year um, in this in the spring in Quebec and Ontario. But where are they most frequent in this country? Um, they can happen in every province. We've we've identified tornadoes in all the provinces and even in Northwest Territories. We did a damage survey in Fort Smith, north of sixty degrees, right? So pretty far wow. north. Um, they tend to happen in the in the prairies. So southern Saskatchewan was always thought to be the was always thought to be the highest rate of tornadoes in the country, and then spreading out from there, Manitoba, Alberta as well, and then southern Ontario. And we're finding more and more in Quebec, which uh, has surprised a lot of people. No one thought there were tornadoes there, but they were they were chasers in that area for years. That saying, "There's tornadoes here," and no one listened to them. And uh, wow. we're finding those ones now too. Is some of the problem? Confusion over exactly what qualifies as a tornado? I don't think there's a huge amount of debate with that. There's a clear definition about the rotation and the clouds going, the vortex going from the ground to the clouds and and things like that. There's a a threshold wind speed that's important to reach. So it has to be causing damage. So a dust devil that might swirl through a parking lot that you see, that's not a tornado. Water spouts are something we're also accounting for. We have a lot of lakes in Canada. Water spouts are just tornadoes over water, so we're identifying those, and we have criteria for that. They have to generate splash and things at the ground level, so that would be indicative of damage, even though there's nothing to hit out over the water, typically. So Canada, after all, is in fact a pretty active place when it comes to tornadoes. It is that, and we think that there's probably more intense tornadoes than people realize, and we're trying to figure out when there's tornadoes in the forest and they're a mile wide, are they really EF2 or can we find ways to identify um, higher intensity tornadoes in that region too? So we're working on all those methods, not just finding them, but getting better measures of their intensity. Yeah, because I guess traditionally EF2 is about as intense as they get here, at least the, the ones I was looking at over the past, I mean, not, not many climb out of that into the what we see south of the border. That's right. There's well-defined ratios, though, statistically. So we expect that there's more uh, strong tornadoes than we're identifying. And so, again, when they don't hit anything, you could have what is an EF5 wind speed. But if it's just over grassland, um, it gets rated EF0 because it hasn't hit anything. And so we're trying to find new damage indicators to help us with those. Uh, Like I think of the Scarth tornado in Manitoba a few years ago. We rated that EF3 based on grain bins, but the vehicles that were thrown and the tragic loss of life associated with that, we don't have vehicles in the EF scale yet. And so we're working on trying to find ways to integrate that. So there's continues to be lots of questions. <laughs> yeah, and, and lots of work too. I mean, I, I know that with modern technology, you're 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 able to cast a much wider net when it comes to looking for this stuff. But still, in a country like Canada, where there are so few people, where there we are so dispersed, or we are so uh, concentrated in one area, and so much of it is 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 uh, there are very few people in so much of the country. Uh, what do you rely on? Then you mentioned it a bit earlier. You you do rely on social media and storm chasers and satellites and radar and all that stuff. Yeah, we rely on all, all of that. Yeah, social media has really been helpful. Twitter and Facebook are, are places when, when people see these things, they tend to post them because they're pretty rare and pretty uh, exciting, terrifying, all of those things. And so so they post them and we, we track all of that. Uh, we use the, the weather radars, track storms when they're happening. And, uh, and the new powerful S-band radars that we have in Canada are helping with that. They have a longer range to help us see the storm tracks. And then the satellite information, uh, the satellite information is, is amazing. We had um, 
one of our, our meteorologists go back and scour back Google Earth and into the 1980s and found wow. over 200 tornadoes that no one knew about previously just from their scars in the forest. 200? Um, going yeah, back, 200. Going back 30 years or so. Wow. <laughs> That's yeah. yeah. Uh, Greg, I guess getting a clearer picture of the tornado situation has benefits, even if these tornadoes are landing in places where no one is seeing them. That's right. As an engineer, I care a lot about the risk and uh, and how we design things. So we don't typically design our structures to withstand tornadoes, but things like nuclear reactors are designed for that. And to get a correct sense of the risk level, we need to know actually how they happen, where they happen. Outbreaks are particularly important. So doing careful identification when when we have multiple tornadoes uh, in a short succession is really important. And so we're trying to identify those. Things like the electrical grid are important for it. All those towers that take the power from the dams in the north to where we live in the south. And we're starting to talk about designing houses for tornadoes too, to keep communities safe and and resilient as the weather changes and as we build more communities to, to deal with our growing population. And and the the impact of climate change here can't be can't be ignored either. I, I suspect we're we may because of weather weather gets more extreme, we may expect to see more of these. So understanding how they how they move across Canadian soil, even though they know no know no borders, understanding how they develop and 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 impact Canada would be important. It is. We we still don't have a real good handle on what climate change is going to do to tornadoes. The, the global models that are used for predicting things like drought and rain don't predict thunderstorms very well. Um, right. And so we just don't have a handle on that. There's lots of scenarios that could happen. In 2021, we had no tornadoes north of the 49th parallel between uh, mid-June and mid-August. And wow. uh, that's peak tornado season. And it was uh, it was dry. That was hot. That was the year of all those wildfires. So you could have scenarios where there's fewer storms in this. And so we just don't quite know what's going to happen. Part of what we want to do is identify tornadoes so we can start seeing those trends, but also work with meteorologists and try to estimate what might be happening uh, here in Canada. But we're not there yet. Uh, I, I know you, you mentioned this off the top. It would be no surprise to most of us, most Canadians, if someone asked you, if you're on vacation and someone said, hey, do you get a lot of tornadoes in Canada? You'd say, not really, not compared to the U.S. We, you know, do you think we've been a little bit asleep to this, to this, um, the threat of tornadoes in this country traditionally? I think we have. Our population is relatively low, and I think that plays for the, for the landmass that we have, and, uh, and I think that plays a role in it. I grew up in uh, in Winnipeg, and when I talked to like my family and relatives on the prairies and uh, in the farming communities they were in, they were very aware of tornadoes and considered them. So I think in the cities, tornadoes can happen in cities, but yeah, I think you get inured to the weather a little bit, and that might play a role because so many of us live in cities now. Yeah, it was interesting. The New York Times just did an article on this, uh, which I read over the weekend. It was was really well done, but it was called Where is Canada Hiding All Its Tornadoes, which was an interesting way of approaching it. Uh, Do you get that from your American colleagues when you talk about this stuff? Yeah, we do. Um, We go to lots of conferences and things like we like to do as as academics. um, And all the U.S. maps stop at the 49th parallel and you don't know what happens above there. And it's like, hang on, (laughs) looks like there's some interesting trends happening up there and they they just uh, ignore it. They have the same problem with population density near the border. If you if you overlay the Canadian and U.S. maps of tornado occurrence, because we have lots of population near the border, there's actually an increase in numbers and, and they have the same problem with lower statistics, lower occurrence identification uh, in the northern states. Our methods could help them out too. 
Yeah, because I can't imagine any of these weather systems decides to take a quick stop once it hits northern Montana, right? It's not. That's uh, right. <laughs> yeah. What now? I mean, we're heading into tornado season, not not just yet, but coming up. What uh, What are you on the lookout for this year? Well, we're bringing some new technology this year. We've got um, LiDAR systems. We can put on backpacks or uh, mount on drones, and this will allow us to actually improve and speed up our, our damage surveys. So when urban areas get hit, it's always um, it's always a mess, and, uh, and the people are, are hugely impacted by this. And when we go in, we try to capture what happened to their houses and to the buildings where they live. And you're often talking to people, and the light, new LiDAR system, we can just put that on our back, and it scans away, and we can just walk through the neighborhoods, and it will capture this data. So we'll get these 3D images and 3D computer maps, really, of, of the damage, and the resolution is, is amazing. And we think this will be a good opportunity to do training uh, when you walk through and talk with emergency personnel and talk to them about the damage. They're always kind of surprised by it. And we can use these kind of new tools to help with training and helping people learn about these events and, uh, and what they can do to mitigate them. Well, Greg, uh, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing all that information with us. And uh, yeah, and, uh, we'll be watching for your work uh, over the next months. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. This is a really disturbing story uh, that came up this week near Kamloops. 17 horses were found shot. Wild horses. Um, I didn't know a lot about wild horses. I knew they existed, but you know, this was a group that was well known in this area. Um, authorities here are, are investigating. The Mounties are calling it a, quote, disheartening act. Uh, the RCMP said at a news release that the Tecumlips Rural RCMP received a report of several dead horses found about 65 kilometers west of Kamloops last Friday. Uh, an RCMP forensic investigation section uh, looked at the scene along with a veterinarian and a livestock investigator. They say the animals appear to have been from a herd of feral horses or feral horses that frequent the area, wild horses, right? Now, the RCMP's only livestock investigator in BC says he believes the 17 horses found uh, last Friday uh, may have been there for as long as two weeks. This is Corporal Corey Lepin. There's two groupings and they're quite a distance apart. Um, the first group of six is, uh, I'd say, you know, two or three kilometers from the second grouping. I was only at the second group of 11, and uh, they're spread out over, you know, a kilometer and a half. Corporal Lepin called the act senseless. The incident has certainly shed, shed light on the existence of these herds. Um, the, the notion of why anyone would want to do something like this and also calls for more protection for the animals. Julie Woodier is Campaigns Director with Zoo Check Canada. That's a charity that campaigns for the protection of wild animals. And she joins me now from Ontario. Julie, thank you. Thank you for covering this important story. I wish it was under better circumstances. Just a bit of your reaction to this. I mean, I've seen stories along these lines in the U.S. and this goes back a while, but uh, this is the first one I can recall here, at least recently. Yeah, we haven't seen too many in Canada recently. You're right. There have been historically some in Alberta and also British Columbia, but um, not in recent years. So this is it was a bit of a shock. What do we know about this herd in particular? Because I gather they're they're quite well known. Yes, they, they most certainly are well known. They're one of the few herds in Canada that people could actually have an opportunity to see. You can also see the ones in the Alberta foothills pretty easily, just traveling out of Calgary. 
So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful herd to have. We're very lucky to have wild horses in Canada. And yet there's the, there's this small group of extremists that really do not appreciate them and, and want to get rid of them. Where do they come from? I mean, that's a very city boy question, but where do they come from? Well, first, it's really important to note that horses evolved in North America originally. So they should be considered a native species. They are believed to have gone extinct about 8,000 years ago and then reintroduced through the a Spanish line of horses that were reintroduced by our indigenous um, nations here in Canada and the United States. So they really should be treated as a reintroduced species because they originally evolved here and they lived in the tens of thousands um, across Canada and and to a greater extent, even in the United States, alongside millions of bison and other species of grazers as well. Yeah, they do occupy uh, an important place in for in indigenous culture and in, on both sides of the border. Yes, both in indigenous culture. Also, I would say even in modern culture, particularly in the West, and also really importantly, they serve a key purpose within the ecosystem, essentially the same purpose that their ancestors served more than 8,000 years ago. They are an important species and should be treated certainly with respect. And in fact, we should really have some protections in place in Canada for the wild horses. There, There's some small protections, like for instance, the Sable Island horses and a small herd in Saskatchewan. But outside of that, there's very little protection for the wild horses. Yeah, the Sable Island ones in Nova Scotia are quite famous. Those are the ones that I knew of. Um, yes. what, what role do they play in the ecosystem and how do they survive? How do they survive the harsh winters and so on? Well, again, they, they evolved into this ecosystem originally, so that the uh, environment is not at all strange to them, um, and they are certainly well-suited for it. Um, the interesting role that they play in the ecosystem actually has to do with the way they eat the grass. Um, horses actually will chew off grass as opposed to tear it out by the roots, which what you that's what you find with cattle, is they'll actually tear the grass out by the roots, which means it doesn't replenish as readily. Um, so there can be damage to the ecosystem by for instance, cattle ranching, whereas the wild horses, they chew off the grass, so the roots remain intact. And they also open up waterways in certain ways because they access um, streams and, and rivers at the same points all of the time. You know, they tend to follow the same lines of paths where they, they move throughout. And so they open up the movement of water f um, in a natural way that's really important for ecosystems as well. And you mentioned grass and so forth, and that therein lies a bit of the conflict, right? And I was seeing this uh, more acutely south of the border in places such as Wyoming, but there have been traditionally uh, some conflict between these wild horses and uh, those who rely on these grasslands to feed their livestock. Yeah, there most certainly is. And, and even here in Canada, there's um, a significant push by ranchers, particularly in the Alberta foothills near the Sundry area, to remove wild horses they don't want them treated as wildlife. They prefer to treat, to call them feral animals that are escaped and so on. But as I said, it, it should be treated as a wildlife reintroduction because that truly what it is, what it is biologically. Anyways, yes, there, there certainly are people out there that want to remove them. In fact, we have uh, a joint project with an Alberta group called Help Alberta Wildies where we have cameras out monitoring 
um, the wild horses and offspring and so on, and, and looking at predation from other wildlife. Dozens of those cameras were stolen last year and again this year, and the RCMP has just charged someone with those thefts, and it's someone who's known to not be a big fan of wild horses. Yeah, I mean, I was I was in this, I don't know what the Canadian, I, I, how big is the herd size here? I mean, how many are there total in the places that you're talking about? We might be able to leave Sable Island out of it. It's remote and far and far from, from where we're talking about. But uh, how many horses are there out there? Because I was reading, of course, in the States, part of the problem was the, the idea of managing the population. I know that 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 is a very you know, bureaucratic term for, for, for a quite, well, quite a, quite a, uh, quite an intrusive way of doing things. Uh, but, but how many are there and does, does the population need to be managed anyway? Well, first of all, the population is so low right. that they could end up going extinct in Canada. The equine specialist group for the IUCN says that you need at least 2,000 animals per area. So that's, you know, sort of a few hundred kilometer area in order to sustain the genetic viability you need to have strong enough genes to be able to survive in the long run. In all of Alberta, we have less than 2,000. Historically, there were like 20,000 in that area. But again, there's an intolerance and, and people want to cull those horses as well, because just like they're doing in the United States, it's because, you know, just there's a stronger and stronger desire for grasslands for cattle ranching which are essentially rented out through a government subsidy, really, because um, you can turn your cattle out on the, the land for a very small sum of money and then not have to feed them for the entire summer season. So that is essentially a subsidy for the ranching industry that they're already getting. But there's an intolerance to other grazers that are in that ecosystem. And since wild horses are not particularly classified with any protections in Canada, they are the first ones that people go after. How would those protections work? And, and do they exist for other for other species like, like wild horses? Yes, certainly there are protections in place for certain species um, across Canada, uh, in particular species that are at risk of going extinct. Wild horses, we believe, should be put in that same category. And we believe also that the protection should be federal because there are so many pressures provincially to eradicate certain herds. But the point is that you need a wide variety of animals moving between what they are called equine zones in order to have that strong genetic diversity that I discussed earlier, so that there's not inbreeding of genetic problems, essentially. Is there a middle ground here? I mean, it's it's probably a conflict that many people mightn't be aware of. Is there is there a middle ground here? It sounds like it's awfully di awfully divided. It is really divided, although I'm unclear as to why. Because, for instance, the couple thousand horses that are in Alberta are are very controversial because of their numbers, and yet there's no damage that can be shown attributed to the wild horses in the fescue grasslands that exist in the foothills. However, there, there certainly is damage caused by cattle. We know that. However, it's important to note that historically, tens of thousands of wild horses and other grass grazing animals lived alongside millions of bison in the same ecosystems. So really, you know, it's a matter of humans, of course, have expanded into a lot of these areas and developed them for other reasons. And so there's less and less tolerance for wildlife generally. And unfortunately for the wild horses, they don't have any protected classification at present. And that's the problem. 
I was reading also about adoption programs uh, in the U.S. Is that a potential solution? There is an adoption program in Alberta, but the problem with that is you maybe you're saving individual animals, but what you're not doing is saving the species because you're still removing them from the wild population. So they're essentially dead to the wild population, and it can also lead to extinction, both what they call the PZP programs, which is um, sterilizing horses chemically, or the adoption programs, because you're removing the genetics from the the wild groups. And furthermore, horses live in groups. And so if you remove a few animals from each group, you actually disrupt the herd dramatically. And it can cause all kinds of other problems within the herd, including just dispersal and then death of animals. So it's it's a very sensitive group of animals to be meddling with. And at present, there's no good indicators that wild horses are causing any damage to the ecosystem. So, in fact, what we should be seeing is protections put in place. How do the herds work? That You, you bring that up, and I, I was thinking of a wolf pack or so on. How do the herds of wild horses function as a social group? Well, you tend to have a, a stallion and several females in the group as well. And he, the stallion will sire lots of foals and so on. And then the young males will go out once they're sexually mature and meet up with other females and form their own small herds. Right. And, and herds can come together as well. The stallions will fight from time to time, particularly in breeding season, but you'll see herds of wild horses come together at certain times of year and be very social with each other. So the, the the killing of these 17 could, in fact, disrupt that entire uh, ecosystem in BC, in that one Absolutely. part of BC. It, it could have very traumatic effects on the population of animals. I'm not sure. I don't have current numbers on, on the size of those that herd in that area. But if this is a significant portion of it, that could lead to extinction of those animals in that region. So what would you like to see as the outcome of this? Uh, you know, obviously the police are investigating. We know that the laws around this aren't particularly strong, even if they do find who's responsible. What would you like to see come out of this? Well, two things. One is I, I think they need to do a proper investigation and include biologists and others in that investigation, not just of um, who killed the animals, but also uh, what impact the death of these 17 animals is going to have on the, the regional group of horses. But the most important thing that we need to be doing in Canada is to start asking our members of parliament to put in place some protections for wild horses in Canada. We're very lucky to have them. If you asked anyone in Europe, would you be interested in coming to see wild horses in Canada? They would jump at the chance. We get photographers traveling here from all over the world to see our wild horses, and yet we don't treat them as any kind of national treasure, but they really are. Julie, thank you so much. Thank you.
Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.